We're looking at Titus chapter 1, the uh, second half of it, but uh, let's read a lot of it. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Saviour. To Titus, my true child, in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Saviour. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He mustn't be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers, deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced, since they're upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure. But to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. But as for you... Teach what accords with sound doctrine. So, good leaders are a great benefit to a community, be it a business, a church, a state or a society, but bad leaders can be a disaster for the same community. So what do we do about them and what do we do about them in church life? Last time, Titus 1, 5-9, you see model leaders that Titus has to appoint in every town. But they were appointed in part to oppose the false leaders that you see in verses 10 to 16. For in verse 9, you'll see the elders' conviction was to hold firmly to the trustworthy word as taught for two very specific purposes. One positive, the other negative. To teach and to refute. So look at verse 9. He must give hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to refute those who contradict it. Verse 9, it is to, to exhort or to encourage in sound doctrine. It's paracaline in didascalia. Uh, it's, the, it's the healthy doctrine from which you exhort and encourage. It's more than teach in terms of just passing on information. But while this is true of the elders in every generation, it was particularly true in Crete in the first century, where Titus was continuing the work of Paul. 
For the reason why the elders must be fit for this double work of exhorting and sound teaching and refuting uh, opponents is given in this 10 to 11, because many must be silent. For they are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers, deceivers, especially the circumcision party, and they must be silenced. Now, we always need elders to lead God's people by teaching and example, and such teaching will always have and involve the courage to correct and expose and refute error. But Crete was a particular problem, for there were many there who would contradict uh, the truth, and they had to be silenced. To help us understand this part of God's word and its relevance to us, we need to know something of the situation to which it was addressed. And a good place to start is to ask, well, who were the opponents? They're described for us in verses 10 to 16, and as we look last time at the model leaders under three headings, convictions, character, competency, I thought we'd look at the false leaders under the same three headings. Repetition, my dear friends, may seem corny and tedious, but it is a powerful educational tool. So you keep saying these three words over in all kinds of contexts, and after a while it becomes part of people's mental vocabulary. So convictions, character, competency, mind you, you've got to be careful not to have your model convictions, character, competency squeeze the Bible out of shape. That's, that's the one danger with doing what we're just doing. But I thought we'd do the same. Firstly, then, their convictions. What is it that they believed and were teaching? Well, they're called the circumcision party in verse 10. Although you'll notice that in the Greek there that the word party is not there. It's to me uh, what I call an over-translation. We're told in verse 14 that they are devoted to human commandments and Jewish myths. So they're broader than the circumcision, but especially they do come, Melissa, from the circumcision, and they have got this interest in Jewish myths. Now, the word myths occurs five times in the New Testament, every occasion only negative. Now, the ancient world, of course, was full of myths and mythology. That's one of the basic ways of understanding the world from their perspective. And so the Bible writers were living in a world much more mythological than the world we live in, and yet they were always negative about myths. Well, it's very important to understand this when certain theological liberals want to demythologize the New Testament or demythologize the resurrection, because they themselves were anti-mythological. They were always against myths. But we have no other reference here to, in the New Testament to Jewish myths. And so what they were in particular, we do not know. However, the devotion to human commandments by people nominated as being of the circumcision and who follow Jewish myths is enough of a description to give us a clue as to who they were or what their convictions amounted to. For we read of such people and convictions elsewhere in the New Testament. We read in Mark 7, for example, where Jesus confronted the Pharisees who insisted in their commandments about external matters like cleanliness, and cleanliness also comes in the word pure there, katharos is cleanliness, while not understanding the problem of internal unclean hearts in Mark 7. We read in Acts 15, the false teachers who were teaching, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Don't know what we're going up, there we go. You cannot be saved. And that lies behind the circumcision party, as called there. 
or again in Galatians 5 of the human false gospel that insisted upon circumcision and keeping the law as the way of salvation, we're warned that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. You're obligated to keep the whole law. Uh, if you would be justified by the law, well then you're severed from Christ and fallen away from grace. So here is the classic legalist, Jewish legalist, of the New Testament, around which so many of the New Testament writers are dealing, and Jesus had to deal, insisting on circumcision as the sign of law-keeping and being justified before God by law-keeping. And then by different human traditions and myths, they insist on laws about religious cleanliness, rather than dealing with the spiritual issues of the human heart. They misunderstood the Old Testament laws about cleanliness, making up their own rules about what you eat, what you drink, and what you touch, instead of learning how God forgives and transforms by the death and resurrection of Jesus and the outpouring of the risen Lord Jesus, Holy Spirit. Now, this is similar to Paul's warnings in Colossians in chapter 2. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you are still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. They have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Or the warning of 1 Timothy 4, of the teaching of demons who forbid marriage and require abstinence from food that God created to be received with thanksgiving. Here is the alternative or an alternative religion that has undermined Christianity for centuries today in Australia and in the coming days of your ministry here. The people who think and teach that by morality, especially religious morality, especially religious ritual, that they will be right with God. The way to God is by keeping rules and regulations, especially about external matters, they say. What you eat, what you drink, what you wear, your fast days, your feast days, no meat on Fridays and no meat at all. The conviction that priests and nuns are closer to God because they're celibate, or that you can become closer to God by meditating in discomfort for hours. That's why we build the church buildings we do and have the pews that we have. Or to think that we're closer to God by endless singing and chanting. The religious rules of where you sit, how low you bow or cross yourself is all part of a way of being right, of doing the things God requires and expects of you. None of it is dealing with the problem of the sinful human heart. None of it is teaching the gospel of Jesus dying for our sins, rising again in victory and sending his spirit to give us new birth. Of the last generation in the Diocese of Sydney, we have moved a long way away from the ritual approach to God via church. We have been able to do that because the ritualists have basically left the church because they went out from us for they not of us uh, they, they, they are the ones who have lost in the great exodus of Christians or church people in the last 50 years. 
In moving away from ritual, some people think we've done it for pragmatic reasons, that we've done it purely because it's, you reach the modern mind and the modern world better. So that now that you come to a new age when some people like a bit of ritual, they say, oh, we should return to ritual because then we'll get people in. No, we left it because we never should have had it in the first place. It wasn't there in the prayer book. It was introduced in the 19th century by the Tractarian movement. And we had an opportunity in history to get rid of it, like John Howard had an opportunity in history to get rid of guns. You take the opportunity when they come upon you, but you do it for principle. And to reintroduce it now, because there are a group of hippies who like to kind of get some color in their religion, and you think for pragmatic reasons you're going to reach them with the gospel is a fundamental misunderstanding of the fights and quarrels and the battles that we've had for the last... That stuff never purifies the heart. That stuff is idolatry. And it moves people away. And coming to the cathedral, I see it regularly as people come in, visitors come in here who haven't got the faintest clue about Christianity but they bow and they cross themselves and they, they bow to the table which actually isn't there and to the reserved sacrament that hasn't been reserved and to the crucifix that doesn't exist and then they don't know. And it's, it's all stupidity, but yet they have been taught by leaders of generations that this is the godly Christian way of being in a holy place. It is very sad. And... If that was the convictions of the false leaders in Crete, what was their character? Well, there are three characteristics. Firstly, they're introduced to us in verse 10 as insubordinate, empty, deceivers. A series of compound Greek words here, insubordinate. That is, they're not under order. They would live, but not under authority, especially the authority of God's word taught by the apostles. They're empty speakers for they teach a message that cannot save. And they're deceivers. They're, they're thinking their mind is deceived as they taught the, as truth things that are actually lies. But secondly, and worse, they, they teach for sh in terms of character, they teach for shameful gain and are immoral. They profess to know God, but you know God and what you know about God can be seen by the way you live and they deny him by their actions and are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. They even teach, we're told in verse 11, for money. That is, that becomes their, their base motive. In the 1980s, we were hit badly by the scandals of televangelists, the Jimmy Backer and Jimmy Swaggart. Um, and hands up those who have never heard of Jimmy Swaggart. Yes, good, and Jimmy Backer. Good. You see, things pass very quickly, but uh, it was front page news day after day. And at the end of that decade, of course, was you had Gordon Gecko on the movie saying greed is good. It was the 1980s and the Christians grabbed hold of greed is good with a vengeance. But you don't have to go back that far. I went to the fount of all knowledge, Wikipedia, and typed in televangelist scandals and there I found 32 cases listed, most of them since 2000, most of them involving money and sex. In fact, in 2007 in America, a congressional, uh, a congressional investigation was set up to look into the tax exemption status of six of the main televangelists today who preach the prosperity gospel.
citing their lavish lifestyles with fleets of Rolls Royces, palatial mansions, private jets and other expensive items. I have learnt in my travels in the United States of America that I can earn more money, possibly two or three times as much money a year, uh, as an itinerant preacher that I can earn here in Sydney on my stipend. And that's without asking for the money, that's just what they give. They're generous to a fault, serious fault. Especially seeing they're paying me. How seriously can they be? They don't know you until you've arrived. You're so far away, 10,000 miles away, they have no idea what they're paying for, but they, they don't invite you back. But, <laughs> brothers and sisters, you see, we don't have to go that far to see the problem. For you and I can be tempted to continue in the ministry because it's the way we get paid and because we cannot afford to quit. So I spoke to a Ministers' Conference of Baptists overseas somewhere, I won't say where, where I suggested a series of reforms that would enhance their church. And an older man spoke up, and he was, he was right on the point of tears, and if he wasn't crying. And he said, it's okay for you, Philip. You're in a tenured position. You can't be moved. But if I did any of those things, I'd be sacked immediately. And I can't afford that because I've got a family support. So I can't afford to do that. Well, at that point, he needs to resign, doesn't he? If you cannot minister in accordance with what you know is the truth in your situation because you cannot afford to be sacked, well, then you're no longer leading the congregation by the word of God, are you? So you don't have to go so far as tele-evangelists. We little fellas also... We also can be motivated by money. Once you have accepted money for ministry of the gospel, your relationship with money is inevitably altered. And it's surprising how much it can sneak into you that that comes the motivation after a number of years. Because if I left now, what else would I do? I'm now unemployable. Now this is not the Cretans but the idea of preaching for money. You imagine it's far from you. Well, it actually just beckons around the corner. Never forget, brothers and sisters, that you and I, in receipt of money, are living off the cross. That's what we're living off. Keep the perspective. Then thirdly, their character is also marked by defiled minds and consciences. So we're told in verse 15, and here is the teaching of 1 Timothy 4 again. For not only is it the teaching of demons, but also the teaching of those with seared consciences. Uh, you see, the law only increases your defilement, both in mind and conscience. For to know the wrong, but not to be able to do anything about it, only moves you to guilt and shame and deeper and deeper into defilement and despair. More rules and prohibitions never helped an addict out of their commitment to, to doing wrong. Telling men to stop watching pornography or alcoholics to stop getting drunk or temperamental people to stop losing their temper and doesn't change their behaviour. It only deepens their sense of guilt and their hopelessness. To the pure, that is those cleansed by Christ, everything is pure, but to the impure, 
Those still defiled and unbelieving, not trusting Christ for cleansing, but trusting in their own ability to keep the law, nothing is pure. In fact, everything is impure. You can cover a woman's head from absolute top to, to, to foot, like the, some Muslims do. That doesn't stop men lusting. For the problem is not in the woman's body. The problem is in the man's heart. Rules and regulations don't change hearts. In the washing in the blood of the Jesus sacrifice, in the transforming power of the Holy Spirit, the human heart is changed. And it's not only the man, but also the woman, who will dress in good deeds rather than what is costly or immodest because she has a changed heart. You see the principle, to the pure, everything is pure. In the vulgarity, you see it in the vulgarities of modern comedians. They cannot get their minds out of the gutter. For some comedians, every joke is about sex and toilet. My father taught me many, many years ago, as a young man he taught me, that when the comedian cracks jokes about the toilet, you know that he's a second-rate comedian. Because anybody can get people laughing about the toilet. Anybody can get people laughing about sex. That requires no wit, no wisdom, no cleverness, no skill, no nothing. It's very sad to see some comedians who are quite funny comedians reduce themselves to that all the time. That, that uh, Scottish man, who I think is quite funny, big man, he's always in the toilet, all the time, can't help himself. Now, we who have been liberated by the sexual revolution and the breakdown of censorship in the 1960s are not at all at ease with ourselves about bodily functions and are easily exploited by second-rate comedians. We can so easily be made to feel intellectually inferior, we Christians, for naively missing the double entendre of a joke, when in fact it might be a sign of spiritual purity and health that you missed the point, because you have a transformed mind and a cleansed conscience. But we are deeply embarrassed when we don't get the kind of the dirty meaning behind don't, don't be ever embarrassed and help young people especially to rejoice in the fact that they haven't got a dirty mind. Because it's not just the comedian out the front that's the problem, isn't it? It's the audience that laughs at the comedian, which can also show the problem. But what are the comp competencies of these false leaders? Are they a danger to us because they are so competent or are they harmless irrelevancies? Well, here's a great paradox. For they're very competent and they're completely incompetent. They're very competent in causing great problems to Christian people, especially lying, beastly, lazy gluttons like the Cretan culture produced. Uh, by the way, notice how stereotyping generalizations are allowed to be said in the scriptures as being true. You can actually describe a culture as being something that is different to another culture. The politically correct speech, which, enable, which prevents you from ever saying Australians are, is not found in the scriptures. Cretans, lazy, gluttons, lying, beastly. But in that context especially, these false teachers, verse 11, are upsetting whole families. And they cannot be ignored as if they do no harm. False teaching has deep impact 
you can see it in, uh, is it 2 Timothy 2, where Paul talks about the gangrenous effect? Is that 2 Timothy 2, or is it 1 Timothy 2? I can't remember now, where he talks of the gangrenous, 2 Timothy 2, where he talks about false teaching being like gangrene. Yet from another aspect, the harm they do is because of their incompetence. For though these false teachers with their legalistic rules and regulations and mythology look highly moral and religious and appear to be able to improve society, they really are incompetent for their message can't change anybody for the good. They're empty talkers, they're deceivers. With their lips they profess God, but in their own very lives they show that they can't do what they're talking about, they're failures. They are like the people of 2 Timothy 3 that Paul summed up as having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. My brothers and sisters, that is a verse that can be basically inscribed across the Anglican communion of the world. They have the appearance of godliness, for they're very big on appearances, on the right robes, on the right occasions, and the right colours, in the right seasons, religiosity written large, but denying its power. And so the Tractarians who came out of evangelicalism in part and believed in the gospel in part, became by Bishop Gore's time in the 1920s liberal. And today what we have is very few Tractarians around anymore. What we have is liberal Catholic. All the religious paraphernalia and none of the real belief. It's pathetic and pitiable except it's so awful. Now where did we go wrong? Well, because we didn't take seriously the competence of false teaching in destroying life. And so we didn't quarrel with them vigorously enough. We didn't silence the enemies. We tolerated Jezebel. That's the problem you'll see in the book of Revelation in chapter 2 and 3 where it talks of the seven churches and the one letter to the seven churches. Remember, it's not seven letters, it's only one letter to the seven churches because the seven churches are all the church. But there is an element within the churches where you tolerate false teaching, you tolerate immorality, and it only grows and destroys. Theirs is a religion of show and externals, dressed up like a scene from the Mikado. They ponce around in their religious buildings, making much of their holiness and their demeanour gaining reputations, qualifications, credentials, and making money to live the high life, while all the time knowing nothing of God, nothing of his cleansing, transforming power that is found in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. So what is Titus to do about these people? Well, Titus's action is spelled out by the apostle quite clearly. He doesn't act alone, but is to appoint elders in every town who will be able to teach the truth and refute errors. You don't have to do it alone, brothers and sisters. Appoint others, teach them, find those who agree with the truth and understand the truth, who together with you will be able to encourage people on the basis of sound doctrine and rebuke and refute those who are opposed to it. And so the false leaders are to be silenced. Verse 11 is very strong, isn't it? They must be silenced. Their mouths must be stopped. But how is Titus to silence these people? Is he to take a gun or a whip to them? It was uh, the man up in Yorkshire who took a whip out into the streets to get people to come to church. At least he was reputed to have done that. 
uh, set the congregation Psalm 119 to sing while he went out and round up those who hadn't come to church. Um, um, what was his name? Grimshaw. Grimshaw had a terrific ministry. Uh, uh, the, the bishop sent an investigation into him to find out why so much communion wine was being drunk only to discover that was because so many people were coming to communion under his ministry um, of the word, not the whip. However, he's reputed to have done it. But how are we to silence people? Is it to bring them before some court and have them charged for misrepresenting the gospel like we did to poor John Bunyan, who represented the gospel faithfully, but was brought before church tribunals and state tribunals and put in prison for 12 years because what right did he have to preach the gospel just because he was converted unlike the clergy are we to call a church council and have them put out of church remember the person who kicks people out of churches Diotrephes in 3 John is actually uh, criticised he's the patron saint of church exclusions sadly when religious groups sadder still when Christian groups get into bed with governments that's what they do. They exercise power in the name of truth. But we mustn't use the weapons of this world to fight the battles of the world to come. It's easy to see when you're in a minority cult, like you're a Protestant in Greece or Russia or France. It's harder to see when you're in a mainstream of the culture, like in America or Britain or even Australia. One way for Titus to silence these people is that the elders are to give instructions in sound doctrine and rebuke those who contradict it. That's how we fight. We fight with prayer and with teaching, not with power, not with government backing and authority. I don't like the cults. Well, I'll give you the illustration of the university days. Every year around the university, cults would come onto the campus. Moonies would come, Hari Krishnas would come. And every year there were moves to have them banned. And every year I opposed every move to have them banned. Of course, if they can ban them one year, guess who they can ban next year? You feel safe and secure because you're on the mainstream. But what happens when you're no longer in the mainstream? That's a daft strategy, but it's also not the Bible strategy. So it's where principles and practice both go hand in hand. Principle practice is what you want. Do not be part of the government censorship of religion. The two beasts of revelation are the government and religion together very dangerous to put them together like we have so often. What we've got to do is teach the truth and give instruction in sound doctrine and rebuke those who contradict it. In every town and every church the leadership of the congregation must be clear about these matters and not only stand up for the truth but also deny and refute their errors. It's not only ideas it's also people. You've got to refute people. You've got to be able to say, not only is that idea wrong, but he is wrong for teaching it. We don't like that. We're much better at saying, well, I don't like your idea here, or I don't like that idea. But in fact, if people are committed to that idea, then I don't like them at that point. God is not going to punish false doctrine. He's going to punish false teachers in the end, isn't he? You can't always have this distinction between the teaching and the teacher. 
There's a phony distinction there. Here is the challenge for us, though. And we have to... We have to have such a grasp of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ in coming down to earth to save us that we not only teach it clearly, but also refute and contradict the alternatives. Especially those alternatives that teach people religious rules as a way of climbing their way to heaven, the opposite of the gospel. And it's one of the great weaknesses of clergy. And it's one of the great weaknesses of second generation Christians. And it's a particular weakness of second-generation Christians who are clergy. Because we, by the gospel and in the community in which we live, become very sensitive men in particular. Sensitive to feelings and relationships. Sensitive to the desire to be accepted and to be recognised by our congregation, but also our denomination and also the world around about us. And so we are very keen on teaching the truth to people, but never teaching it in such a way as we, that we will alienate anybody <clears throat> or have a rift in relationship. And certainly, we don't like denying error, especially when the error is connected with a person. For if we denied the error that person held, we might actually lose the relationship with them. And so... See, that, that Baptist man from overseas, he was terrified because he would lose his money and he had to provide for his family. Most of us are not caught into that terror until we're in our 50s and 60s. It'll come to you then, my friends. But we are in the terror of losing friendships, of splitting churches, of causing division. Causing division is the great crime in the Australian community. The worst thing you can be is un-Australian. What is un-Australian? Of course, it's a complete nonsense morality, isn't it? But what is it in the end? It is division. That's what it is. If you're going to do something in this community that will divide this community, then you are dividing Australia. Therefore, you're un-Australian. And that is carried over into our own church morality. So... In some theological and ecclesiastical fights of yesteryear, I've rung up the rectors and said, how are you going on such and such an issue? And they say, well, it's not a problem here in our church. And I say, oh, good, you've been teaching about it. No, no, I've found it a lot better just not to say anything and we can keep harmony working in the congregation. And of course, you're no longer the pastor of the congregation at this point. This is like the politician who's always consulting with the, the, the community groups to find out what policy he should be put leading the country with next. It, it's back to front thinking, isn't it? You're not the leader at all. You're being led. And worse, of course, the congregation slowly becomes more and more diverse, and a congregation that is theologically diverse is called liberal. And you, an evangelical minister, are slowly turning your church into a theologically liberal church because all viewpoints are welcome here. Of course they're all welcome here because I never want to actually distance myself from any person. And so if a person comes with a different viewpoint, well, I accept him and his viewpoint and appoint him into leadership. In the long term, of course, 
after you retire and resign from that parish and move on elsewhere, the divisions and the splits all come out and the wholesale abandonment uh, to liberalism follows. So they get in a minister who is genuinely liberal, unlike you, or they get in one who believes something and actually teaches it and the whole church explodes because the divisions are there. So Titus had the same responsibility of the elders. He was to be rebuking the Cretans sharply. Notice they're not cretins, by the way. That is a disease of, uh, uh, of lack of, uh, it's the opposite of hydrocephaly, so it's less moisture in the brains. It's a, they're not cretins, they're cretins. Notice the difference. It's like Armenians and Armenians. Just need to make sure that you understand the difference between the two. He's to rebuke them that they may be sound in the faith and not devote themselves to this false teaching in verse 13. For Cretan culture was given to lying laziness and would need a sharp cutting rebuke, not a subtle hint and a nudge, to realise that they're being led astray and they need to return to the gospel and have that sound, healthy faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice the nature of such healthy faith that you have there. Sound in the faith, that is, not giving yourselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. That's the character of healthy faith in the Lord Jesus. And so Titus, like the elders he appointed, was to teach what was in accordance with sound doctrine, chapter 2, verse 1. Our chapters and our headings always give us problems, don't we, as we try and divide up the Bible into containable bits. Um, worse still by these Bibles which do insist on giving us headings in big, bold, most of which are wrong and inappropriate. Uh, chapter 2, verse 1 and we'll pick up chapter 2 next time, which we'll be looking at next time, is to, that what he's got to teach is to fit with sound doctrine. But when we go through 2, 1 to 10, you'll see that that would put you in opposition, not just with Crete, but with Australia, not just in the first century, but the 21st century as well. But we'll look at those things next time. In the meantime, notice Titus' actions are not only to rebuke sharply, but also to teach faithfully. Here is the way to lead God's people aright, Exhort them in sound doctrine and teach what accords with sound doctrine. Have you noticed how much people who do not know the saving work of Christ denounce doctrine, even the very word, let alone teaching? They denounce teaching as a central activity of church life and they denounce doctrine in particular. I mean, to us, doctrine, because we've been through college, is a kind of what's well, like systematic theology. But that's not what I think Paul meant. To the world today, doctrine is a dirty word, meaning doctrinaire, doctrinal, inculcating some dogmatic, even dogmatic, which I think is much closer to what the apostle meant. It's one of those things where I think the world has understood better than we do. Christianity is a decided, distinct point of view that needs to be taught. That's what it is. And that's what he has to do. Which without the negative con connotations of the modern world is what Paul was meaning. People come to us in the morning and some people come to us in the morning and not so much here, but I used to have it in pastime. And then they'd go to charismatic churches in the evening or vice versa. And several times in my life, I've had them come to me and say, I don't know why you don't get on with the charismatics better than you do, Philip. 
and I suggest it's because we're in two different religions, which they don't really like all that much. They say, we love coming to hear you because we love coming for the teaching. And we love to go to the charismatic church because we love to go there for the music and for the worship. Because it's a lie, isn't it? Because if they actually did come to me for the teaching, they would know not to go to the charismatics for the music and the worship. It's a nonsense. It's gathering teachers to scratch your itchy ears. I like the sound, I like the rhetoric, I like the flourish, I like the, I like the sense that I'm in the Bible, but I'm actually not going to pay any attention to what you're saying because I want to continue on that other religion at the same time. It's not teaching itself that matters, but teaching the truth on how we're saved, not by our own efforts in fulfilling religious rules, but by the cleansing that comes from Jesus' death and changes that come from his resurrection and the spirit that he brings. And it's teaching then what accords with that in our lifestyle. But that's next month. That's next time we meet together in chapter 2 in what is one of the most politically incorrect parts of the whole Bible. Don't miss it. You're allowed to read ahead if you want to. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that we do not stand on our merits but his. We thank you that we do not stand in our guilt but in his sacrifice. We do thank you and praise you, Heavenly Father, for the one who makes it possible for us to even call you our Father. And we pray that you would help us, enable us, strengthen us to so understand and be committed to your truth that we might teach it fearlessly, even in the face of opposition, opposition in the community, opposition within churches and within our denomination, that we might stand for the truth and that we might refute error, that we might be bold and courageous for the sake of truth, risking relationships and friendships risking promotion and advancement in the things of this world, risking even our livelihood if need be, that we might uphold the powerful gospel word of salvation, that through the Lord Jesus in his death and resurrection we may be saved, not only us, but for the sins of the whole world, he stands as our propitiation. Help us, enable us, strengthen us, please, Father. Clarify our minds, embolden our hearts, that we may, like Titus of old and the elders of Crete, be men and women who will stand for the truth, refute those who would preach otherwise, make Jesus known, and bring salvation to many. And we pray, Heavenly Father, for this strength of mind and will through our Lord Jesus Christ himself. Amen.